A brilliant scientist invents a teleportation device and tests it on himself. But when a tiny little housefly flies into the machine with him, the process combines his DNA with the flies and creates two horrific monsters. The scientist gains the head and arm of a fly, while the fly gains the head and arm of a human being. The scientist can feel his humanity fading away and must think of a solution before the little fly with his DNA can escape in this 1958 horror sci-fi classic, The Fly. I'm Connor Izagari. And I'm Josh Allred. And this is Filmgasm. Happy Wednesday, everyone. Welcome to episode 111 of the Filmgasm podcast. I'm joined today by guest host Josh Allred, maybe the biggest Vincent Price fan I've ever met. Thanks for being here today. Always a pleasure. So longtime listeners will know that Austin and I dove into Price's career heavily in episode 35 back in October 2019. We watched some of his greatest hits, talked about who Price was as a person, We both came to the conclusion that, in our minds, Vincent Price was a good man with a big heart who loved his fans and did a lot for his community. And uh, The Fly was a draw from the book of Filmgasm, and it's the first time we've revisited one of his films since that episode, so it's cool to be back in this world. Uh, There's no rewind this week, so let's jump right into it. Josh, I know you have a uh, personal connection with Vincent Price. Why do you love his films so much? Um, I mean, I've mentioned it quite a few times it it always goes back to my mom um she was really big into vincent price hammer you know christopher lee peter cushing all those all those movies and out of all of them he was the one that she gravitated to the most and so anytime something of his came on it could have been like the last man on earth or house of blacks um pretty much anything that had him in it she watched it and she kind of that was one of the one of the earlier like horror movie actors that I really gravitated towards and I think really in any role that he's in he's he's so committed and he's such a professional throughout everything that no matter how campy and goofy some of these movies feel now which for me was the case with the fly um he still brought a real sense of like commitment and feeling and a lot of passion to what he did. And that more than anything else is really like, when I think of Vincent Price, like that word passion comes into my head. True. Yeah. He, he was definitely committed. He, you feel that he fully immersed himself in every character he played or no matter how goofy or trivial it might feel to like to the audience he was always very present and I'm glad I, that we did that episode back in uh, last like two previous Octobers because I got to kind of look at the fly in a, in a new light, got to kind of, you know, with all this price knowledge I now have got to kind of see a different side of this movie. And I still kind of, I still, my, I stand by my initial review uh, a few years ago, but I did enjoy it more this time around. I, I think of the, I think this is a very dated film, like extremely dated. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. However, the thing, the thing that I like about watching older films and having some kind of context for them, it allows you to appreciate it 
in ways that, you know, you can be very dismissive of movies that were, I mean, even silent movies, you know, you can be very dismissive about how, you know, oh, it's not really that scary, like, or whatever. But if you have context and you have something to give you an understanding on why these movies are so significant. Um, I've never seen The Fly and watching it, I had, I, I couldn't help but throw Cronenberg's movie onto it. Yeah. And that was unavoidable. And it's, it's always gonna happen. However, I think with Vincent Price and knowing that this was one of the, one of the movies that really kind of pushed him farther into the realm of horror movies, he was he looked back very fondly on it and you can't you can't not note the significance of something like this and kind of um i'll, I'll talk about it like the further we get onto it but because i looked at a review that was written the year it came out it was published in the new york times the author was howard thompson and kind of what he talks about and i think if you try to put yourselves in somebody who is seeing that for the first time, you kind of understand, you know, why it was so effective. For somebody like us now, this movie is kind of goofy. Um, it's, you know, like you want to have that, you, you want to be like struck by something. And this movie, there's a lot of delayed gratification in this movie. You don't really get to see anything up until the very end. However, in the opening scenes of the movie, you see the aftermath of everything. And it's pretty damn bloody. So it doesn't, it doesn't shy away from that. But I kind of liked the, the construction of it. I liked how it was played out as like this mystery of what happened to this guy. And it kind of worked its way backward. So yeah, context always helps. Always. I too, I did like the structural, the structure of this film working your way backwards to the creation of the fly was creative. And inevitably, like you said, you know, Cronenberg's film is so groundbreaking and like just iconic at this point that it is impossible for this film not to get overshadowed by it. I think if Cronenberg had never remade the fly, I don't know if this film would have the same legacy today that it does. I think Cronenberg's film kind of shown, like kind of brought this film with it in a way, like it brought it to now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and I think, I think the, the things that he did with it and kind of in a way, like kind of combined the characters that Vincent Price and um, I think the other guy's name, his brother that played Andre yeah. kind of put them together in a sense and had that, that sense of humanity and like, but also like this manic mad scientist Cause I think that's one of the things that's really that Cronenberg kind of goes for broke, but also like in a really like, it's a very, uh, there's a lot of affection with that. Cause you really do love Seth Brundle in, in, in his, in his fly. Whereas you kind of see Andre in this as kind of very withdrawn. He's only, he's all about his work. That's the only thing he's cared about. He's very, he's very much a one-track mind kind of guy. That and I think the decision to inhibit uh, Andre from talking after he's transformed, I think that keeps you from relating to him and keeps you from caring about his transformation. 
with you know with Goldblum, you get to see every piece of that transformation. You're along the entire ride to the point where you're just as you know heartbroken as Gina Davis is at the end of that movie. With this guy, you're kind of just like, you know, take off the hood. Like, I want to see some fly. <laughs> I don't know. I just, and also, you know, I mean, I'm not, you know, there's no way they would have ever been able to go even a half inch as far as Cronenberg went with the fly in 1958. The restrictions were insane. So what they were able to make for, you know, what they had to work around, pretty admirable, I think. Oh, definitely. And, but I also think it kind of employed a lot of less is more and a way to kind of show in certain ways that he was losing his humanity um, with his handwriting and things like that, that were slowly becoming more erratic and less coherent and, and all of that stuff. So you did kind of see it. And I also feel like they couldn't rely on the monster effects to kind of pull people through i think when it does come it has to come and it has to be immediate and it has to just you know it, it has to be the, the 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 end of everything because you show that on screen for too long it's just going to be goofy <laughs> it it is yeah i think so for sure <clears throat> so the fly was based on a 1957 short story by George Langelan that was first published in the June 1957 issue of Playboy magazine. It's also included in Langelan's 1964 short story collection, Out of Time. And he was a French-British author. That's why all of these characters are French, despite nobody even remotely trying in the movie. <laughs> well, except for the, uh, the factory guy. Yeah, that he's, one guy. He's like the only one that spoke with a French accent. And that was one of the things that I always was like, you know what, see, Vincent Price, he, I mean, he could probably have spoken with a French accent. He was that, he was that, you know, that worldly that he could have pulled it off. So I think, you know, probably some suit was probably like, we can't do that. That's why they changed the setting from Paris to Canada, make it a little more believable that they could have some kind of Americanized accent. I feel like it would have just been easier to just change the characters' names. <laughs> yeah, yeah, easy, real easy. Like I'm supposed to believe a guy named Francois Delombre speaks like Vincent Price. <laughs> hey, man, I I just went along for the ride. I I would watch I would watch scenes of Vincent Price on the phone smoking cigarettes all day long. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, the Fly was directed by Kurt Newman who directed a ton of genre films between 1932 and 1958, but nothing as notable as The Fly. Like, I didn't recognize a single film in his filmography. And he died only five weeks after the film's release at uh, 50 years old from Natural Causes. He didn't get to see the success of The Fly. It was the biggest box office he ever had, but he didn't get to see it. Yeah, that's and that's something else that I don't think a lot of people that first look at this will comprehend. The fact that it was made at the time for like what well under a half million dollars or right at a half million dollars and grossed over three million that's a that's a, that's a successful movie period yeah. and it's a shame that he wasn't there to see that yeah especially since you know i think if he had survived he would have done some i think he would have been done some really interesting stuff after the fly certainly absolutely i mean a, a lot of movies around that time that was all like post-World War II, you know, nuclear bomb, you know, everybody was afraid of 
you know, nuclear fallout. And you had a lot of movies that were all, you know, irradiated fucking creatures from the desert and giant ants and spiders and the blob wasn't too far away. Like a lot of that stuff was, was coming out. So I'm sure somebody would, cause I mean, if you think about it, this movie um, was pretty like pretty well shot and pretty well put together so you know clearly this clearly Newman knew what he was doing yeah for sure and you had mentioned that this was kind of you know the post-world war ii fear of atomic energy time in america and the fly really does kind of bring the atomic fear like grandiose atomic fear of them and kind of put it in a smaller scale and that's really neat. I like that. I like the themes of the movie. I like the construction. I just think it's really lacking in the story department for me. I think it's like, there's too much of nothing. There's too much of just nothing happening for grand stretches of time. But I think that if they tighten the screws, I think that I like this film really would, would have popped more even like today. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the relationship between, uh, Andre and his wife and, and son, like if that would have been a lot more believable, because because I mean, I, well, okay, I'll, I'll say believable in the sense that like they had a really close relationship. Because one of the uh, one of the things I was kind of joking about was how they're you know Vincent Price makes the comment that he, he and his brother have so much money they don't know what to do with it. And it's like, you see their nanny making them food and taking care of their kid and all this stuff. And it's like, they don't have those same kind of problems that, you know, Seth Brundle has. Like he, he was literally living in his laboratory, so dedicated to his work that like he would suffer like an artist just to make his name. And I think if you had that level of commitment in some way to show like how that commitment like also strains his marriage and things like that but i will also i will also say that his wife showed herself to be pretty intelligent and understanding of what he does and question him on a couple of things so kudos for that because you didn't you 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 didn't see a lot of female characters in the 50s and 60s show that they had a brain you know, they're usually there for eye candy and to be, you know, accessories for the male characters. And the fact that she was pretty smart throughout the whole thing. I mean, aside from some decisions she made, she, she, she held her own. Yeah, I agree with that. But on, I think that they kind of, in doing that, sacrificed the emotional range of the character. Like in order to be intelligent, she had to be completely shut off of her emotions because we don't ever really see her mourn her husband who she crushed in a fucking industrial press. Like nobody really mourns Andre. Everyone's just kind of like, well, I guess my brother's dead and my wife, like his wife might've killed her, but eh, you need anything? Like it was just a weird way to show that kind of incident. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think, I think everything was kind of matter of fact. Yeah. And I don't know if that's a, a byproduct of their level of intelligence, how they're that, you know, detached from their emotions. Yeah. Um, because even their, even their son, he really, really didn't show much emotional range. I mean, even when his mom like 
would yell at him for catching flies and stuff. Like there wasn't, there was one moment he looked at her and I thought he looked like one of the kids from Village of the Damned. He's just like staring at her. And I was like, what the hell? But yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, there, there is a little bit of a, of a disconnect there for sure. Yeah. It's wild. I don't know if they didn't have like the, if they didn't know how to handle a situation like that in film at the time, like, you know, the idea of your brother's wife, uh, literally crushing your brother to death in an industrial press and you're just kind of like oh how is she is she okay (laughs) like i would be like you killed my brother like i wanted to see that you know i wanted to see vincent price be kind of like you murdered my brother like i wanted to see that side of him yeah yeah (laughs) no i know not gonna get any argument out of me Uh Uh, so the film stars legendary horror icon Vincent Price as Francois Delambre, the vaguely rich brother of scientist André Delambre. Price appeared in a number of iconic dramas like Laura and the Ten Commandments before dominating the horror scene throughout the 50s and 60s with films like House of Wax, The Tingler, House of Usher, House of Haunted Hill, The Last Man on Earth, and The Abominable Dr. Fives, among many others. Price would die in 1993 at age 82 from lung cancer and emphysema, but his legacy will live forever. And uh, yeah, I think uh, I I wouldn't list the fly among my favorites, but I do enjoy his performance. I pretty much enjoy his performance in anything I watch. Like he's just a good anchor to enjoy a movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he has, he has all of the qualities of like, when you think of classical Hollywood actors, you know, um, Cary Grant, Clark Gable, Jimmy Stewart. I mean, the list goes on. Like he's he's up there as far as I'm concerned. If if I could make a Mount Rushmore of Hollywood greats, he's definitely up there. Easy, like no questions asked. And if somebody wanted to fight me about it, we could fight about it. But Vincent Price is one of the best American actors of all time. All yeah, time. hell yeah. Um, he he just he had this he had this presence on screen that like you were always captivated by him. Um, I think the first time I actually saw him was in Edward Scissorhands. And then I had to kind of work my way back from there. Um, and even in, even though he's in there just as a cameo, it's so brief. It's the last time he was ever in a movie. Um, he still could Yeah. He's, he was amazing. He's amazing. He was. He was certainly awesome. And uh, my first actually was The Fly. It was, uh, I watched this for the first time about six years ago, I think. I watched it in, uh, on Texas State's campus in one of the buildings waiting for a class. And I had like an hour and a half to kill. And I'm like, oh, The Fly's on Netflix. I guess I watched that. I watched it on my laptop and I was like, eh. (laughs) um, So... I was I, I was gonna I was gonna wait to try and find a way to 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 wedge this in here, but one of the because I watched it on my TV and one of the things that I I was kind of I guess not really like surprised by because it, it was pretty uh, commonplace at the time, but the fact that they shot this in CinemaScope like this was a huge widescreen anamorphic movie, all that stuff. Um, d- d- yeah, this movie definitely deserves to be put up on a big screen um, because you just get the full breadth of the world that you're in. Um, 
I mean, if you've seen Westerns from that time, you know that anamorphic lenses and, you know, and cinemascope and Vista view, Vista vision, sorry. And all these other um, anamorphic lenses that got brought out were like the, this was, this was a way that Hollywood tried to rival the emergence of television and to kind of remind people that going to a theater is special and it's an experience that you're not going to get staring at a square. Um, so yeah, kind of, kind of sucks that that was your first Vincent Price movie to watch on a laptop. However, <laughs> you, you got bitten by the bug. So I can't, I, I can't fault you for that. Yeah. Eventually I did do my homework. I sat down and I watched his films the way God intended and yeah, I'm a big fan now. So it worked out. <laughs> um, we have Patricia Owens as Helen, Helena, Helena Delambre, Andre's wife and the one who ends up killing the fly. Owens appeared in such films as Sayonara, Mystery Junction, and The Happiest Days of Your Life. Owens died in 2000 at age 75 from cancer. And I think she's good in this. I wish she'd been a little bit more broken up about this horrific tragedy. But other than that, she's... She's good. Oh, certainly. Um, as I said, she was, she was, she was very formidable as yeah. like a foil for her husband and for Vincent Price. Um, <clears throat> I was so I started reading the short story in kind of preparation for this, oh. and I wanted, I wanted to see her be a lot more obsessed with finding this fly. And I think for for the runtime that this movie is, and I, I didn't get a chance to actually finish the short before I watched the movie, um, this movie moves at a really brisk pace. Um, I was I was impressed by how fast this movie was moving. And that was one of the things that um, Langolin really made apparent is that she is obsessed with finding this other fly and to you know, put her husband back together, kind of showing in a way that these two are pretty much meant for each other because he's obsessed with perfecting his machine and techniques and she's obsessed with putting him back together. And that's something that, you know, definitely shows how much she loves Andre. Um, and it, it is kind of hard because one of the things that um, Howard Thompson remarked about was how faithful they were to the short but I also think it suffered because they weren't able to kind of translate a lot of that on, onto the screen because it does move pretty brisk. Yeah, for sure. I think an hour and a half is my favorite movie runtime. It's long enough to, you know, draw you in and not kind of leave you wanting more, but it also doesn't, you know, keep you there for fucking hours. I think it's, you know, it's good, concise. Most horror movies are in that bubble. And, um, I think, yeah, I think there was plenty of time to have her try a little harder. I think she's kind of going like to all everybody in the house, like, hey, if you see a fly with a white head, catch it. But, you know, don't put yourself out. <laughs> like, there's no sense of urgency here. It's Yeah, yeah. It's just I, I, I think it was just like the, the way they put all of that together. What they did show, I don't think it was I don't think it was enough to kind of get that and allow her to kind of flex her emotions. Because there was that one where she, uh, that one scene where she did get pissed off at her nanny for trying to take one out with a fly swatter. And that was what I was looking for more of, for sure. Yeah. 
And then in the end, when they're all just like sipping lemonade outside, like, hey, you know, everything worked out, didn't it? Like, no, not in the slightest. <laughs> no. <laughs> you no, fucked up that, and he's dead. Yeah, there, there's a very tragic, tragic end to all of that. That ending yeah. just makes me laugh when everyone's just like, you know, hey, well, let's go to the zoo. Oh, you mind if I come? Like, did you like? Did you not experience what just happened? <laughs> yeah, I. That's see, and that's and that's like old Hollywood for you. Like everything always had to be roses and sunshine and rainbows right at the end. It all had to be wrapped up nice. Everybody had to go home happy. You know, you couldn't end on that note of help me, help me. <laughs> yeah, I helped you, bro. I put you out of your misery. Love you. I'm gonna go home with your old lady. Like that, that, that was the ending that should have happened, but instead they're walking off into the sunset, going to the fucking zoo, eat popcorn and shit. Would have been great if we'd gotten like kind of a, a subplot where like Francois knew the whole time, but he didn't care because he wanted Andre out of the picture so he could get the, the girl. That would have been very, I think that would have played to Price's strengths and it would have been interesting. Dude, out of all the, like, okay. So I think one of my, one of my favorite performances of Vincent Price all time, and it goes against like, you know, a lot of the other roles is when he was in Witchfinder General. Man, he is such a bastard in that movie. <laughs> but I love him. I fucking love him in that movie so much. So much. That is such an evil, dark fucking movie, but he is so great. Matthew Hopkins, that son of a bitch. I looked into that guy in real life. Cause I wanted to find out like what, who was this guy? And yeah, pretty damn close. That guy was pure evil taking advantage of crazy, like, you know, paranoid over religious people and just abusing that authority across the entire country. It was insane. Oh man. <laughs> Cocksucker Supreme. That guy. Yeah, that should have been his title. Yeah. For real. <laughs> Amongst other things. Oh God. We have David Hedison, who plays the ill-fated scientist, Dr. Andre Delhomme, who becomes the fly. And Hedison portrayed James Bond's best friend, Felix Leiter, in the Bond films Live and Let Die and License to Kill, was the first actor to play Leiter more than once. I literally just watched License to Kill like two days ago, and I was like, holy shit, Felix Leiter is the fly. <laughs> Wild. I did not expect that. Um, Hedison actually died last year, 92 years old, from an undisclosed illness. And I guess that makes him like the last person from this uh, cast to bite the, bite the big one. And he's good, Edison, for like the bit he gets to do as Andre. And I think it is him wearing the fly makeup too. So he's he's doing that part. And uh, yeah, I think he did a he did a good job. He was well cast. I liked him. Yeah, yeah, no, he um he he treads that line from like really really wonderful, like full of energy, this really buzzing creative scientist type. But then he also has like these really subtle moments where you see just how obsessed he is. Like, I think one of the best descriptions of him as a, as, as a person in this, in this film is when he first introduces Helene to everything that he's done down there. And then he gets an idea in his head and he just like, just goes, sits at his table. And he just starts fucking writing out. And then when they're at the ballet and she's all having fun and he just starts writing out a formula and stuff. And it's just like, this is the guy. This is the guy that is just so obsessed with 
so obsessed with cracking this code, like whatever he's trying to do. And it's like, he can't stop. He can't turn it off. And in a sense, I understand that because I think I've told you before, like my writing and stuff, it's very compulsory. And sometimes I just, I, I have to do it. And it's, it's a lot of like trying to like fight that urge because sometimes you're not happy with what gets vomited out there, <laughs> but you know, sometimes you just got to do it. Yeah. I think, uh, he reminds me very much of first act Seth Brundle where he's obsessed, but we like him where he's charming and he's taking Gene Davis out for a burger, but he's never stopping. It's always moving. And Hedison portrays that side of him very well, but then also under the fly makeup when he's, you know, he's got the blanket or the sheet over his head, the way he like slaps the table is very aggressive and just kind of like you can, with that, you can feel his humanity slipping away with the way he slaps the table, like the, the dramatic, just like, no, it's very well done on Hedison's part. I think using that, like using his body language to convince us that he's losing his mind. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I think that's what you would kind of get from actors of that time like they're they're very they're very used to and a lot of this is still structured like to play out in front of you as if it's a stage play um i i would i I kind of like caught myself watching vincent price like go into the background to open up a door to the basement and he's using his proper like stage etiquette to go down there to like where you can still see the full frame of his body going down the stairs and stuff. And it's like, they're still, they're still adhering to treating this as if it was a stage production in front of you. So those little things, like a lot of big gestures and all that stuff very much lends itself to um, Hedison's performance when all he has is like literally one hand because he's keeping the other one in his pocket. Um, and I think for all of the, the goofiness from how much this film has aged, and I, I, I don't think it's aged well, but I will, I will still give credit where it's due in, in these moments because you still have a fantastic performance from Vincent Price. Um, Hedison is really, you know, going for broke in in whatever he can do literally one-handed doing one-handed performance so i mean you you have to be able to tip your hat to that yeah for sure it's funny you should mention that uh the film reminds you of like the structure of a stage play because i found out in my research that howard shore actually turned the cronenberg movie into an opera (laughs) what the i didn't even know that yeah in like 2008 I would I can't imagine the Cronenberg version as a fucking opera. Like that sounds amazing. <laughs> I want to watch that. Yeah, I'm gonna try to find like if you know if it was ever filmed. But uh, yeah, just wild. <laughs> and then uh, finally, we have Herbert Marshall as Inspector Shiraz, the most even-tempered and reasonable cop in movie history. Uh, Marshall also appeared in such films as Foreign Correspondent. Trouble in Paradise and The Letter, among many other British productions. Marshall died in 1966 at age 75 from a heart attack. And Inspector Shiraz is willing to just let a lot of things, you know, take their course in this movie. He's very like, 
hesitant to arrest anybody despite all the evidence he's willing to let this whole story about a, a mutant fly like you know let her talk about it like it's kind of crazy how laid back this guy is fucking canadians they're <laughs> so cool their universal health care and their legal weed assholes bag milk yeah. I'm kidding. I love Canada. I'd love to go visit. And if anybody is listening to this and you're from Canada, say hello. <laughs> yeah, I think I've been looking at our stats and we do have a bit of a global reach, which is pretty cool. And uh, we got some fans in South Africa, which is pretty neat. <laughs> Hell yeah. Maybe they know Charlize Theron and they can hook us up with an interview or something. Get her on the podcast. Let's do that. I will, I will fawn over that woman. She's amazing. That would be sweet. And you know what? She seems just down to earth enough to, to do that. <laughs> Man, I, I, would, I would act like Chris Farley when he did his bits on Saturday Night Live trying to interview people. <laughs> like, you remember that time that you were in a Mad Max movie? It was awesome. Yeah, that was great. Oh my God. Yeah. I wouldn't be able to keep remember that time. You <laughs> remember that time you humped Seth Rogen? Yeah. I wish that was me. Like <laughs> just, I would totally embarrass myself. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> the fly has an IMDb score of 7.1, a surprisingly high rotten tomato score of 95%. Uh, it was a big hit grossing about 3 million on a budget of a little under $700,000 had two sequels and a hugely successful remake and uh let's talk a bit about the movie as a whole here i have some points i'd I'd like to bring up just stuff i noticed oh and i will say also that the legacy of vincent price and this movie also managed to find their way into the punk rock world because the misfits have a song called return of the fly yeah i know that song and every time every time every time why I was watching this movie, there wouldn't go a time that I would hear that song in my head. I hear Danzig just going, Return of the Fly, Return of the Fly, oh with God. Vincent Price. <laughs> this evil Elvis ass. I, yeah, no, like, and that right there already shows you just how loved Vincent Price is. The fact that a bunch of New Jersey punk kids loved and revered him enough to make a song about him and not to mention later on in the 90s after Danzig left they came out with one of my favorite albums of theirs Famous Monsters the beginning intro track is called The Abominable Dr. Vibes so there you go kick ass man that's a great connect- connector that's awesome I haven't thought about that song in years that was a uh, when I was a kid my dad uh had a misfits CD collection and he would randomly play songs for me to like, you know, judge what I liked. And I fucking loved return to the fly. I would play that song. And actually I have to, actually I have to correct myself because I just remembered it wasn't on famous monsters because that was calling at the gates. That was the intro track. It was American psycho. Ah, excuse me. All my nerd, my punk rock nerd friends. I corrected myself. You can stop screaming now at the podcast. Just relax. I fixed it. Okay, carry on with your day. <laughs> yeah, that is that. That's neat. 
I like that. I'm gonna I'm gonna look that song up after we're done here. It's been a long time. Kick ass. Um, yeah, like that that era that era of the Misfits. So fun, so fun. Killer. I have a shirt that's the uh, the Misfits logo, but it's a Martian, and it says attacks instead of Misfits. So it's like a whole it's a Mars attacks mashup. It's good bitchin' shirt. Um, so this film, The Fly, 1958, the Hayes Code still in effect, yet. The opener, when they find Andre's body, it is gory as hell. There's a guy pressed into industrial press, and there's blood everywhere. I'm surprised at how far they were allowed to take that. Well, I think a lot of that, with the Hays Code especially, was length of time that stuff was shown on screen. Because yep. um, you, you couldn't show people kissing for more than you know so many seconds, and you couldn't see their mouths move. I think one of the one of the examples I had of the Hayes Code when I was in college was from, I want to say it was Notorious, because I'm pretty sure Cary Grant and, um, oh God, now I'm going to mess up her name. Oh God. Bergman's wife was her name. Oh, oh. Ingrid Bergman, yeah. Okay. How many times they just like pressed lips. They didn't move. They just sandwiched their faces together all. And, and that was, and that was Hitchcock. Like if ever there was an old stuffy British dude, that was also very much about thumbing his nose at the establishment. Hitchcock did it every time, like so much. So you remember the end of notorious where there is literally a train going through the tunnel Talk about innuendo, bro. Tell me he wasn't trying to say something happened at the end of that movie when they were really going, you know. I love Hitchcock's determination to, you know, edge the line as close as possible. And thankfully, you know, his dedication to making Psycho is what fucking killed the Hays Code, finally. And, uh, yeah, we, we talk about the Hays Code comes up a lot on Oscar Sunday because we go back and revisit a lot of different decades of film and, films that were, you know, suffered because of all those restrictions. And it's something I think we're going to be talking about forever. And it is cool to see movies like The Fly that just sneaked by, like barely. And I'm sure they had to, you know, sacrifice like the original ending, which involved like, you know, Helena, I think like killing herself or something. And instead they opted for, you know, wholesome American fun where everyone goes to the zoo. So, well, yeah, no, like that was, that was absolutely something that had to happen. Like you had the heterosexual coupling, you had a man and a woman ending up together. That was always a thing. It, it was like written. That's why, you know, it, it was law in the way films were made. And I think the fact that filmmakers, you know, especially like Hitchcock, even down to somebody like Kurt Newman were willing to just push and push and push showed that the Hays Code was, it was bullshit. It, it never should have, it never should have been put together in the first place. Um, but without those actions. And I think, I think the only thing I can say to its merit is that it truly showed who the artists were. Those directors that were really savvy and very, very smart to sneak in their ideas right under the noses of these sensors who are only looking for things at face value. 
Very true. Very true. We, I think when, when uh, Austin and I talked about the treasure of the Sierra Madre, that was one of those films that very much John Huston was pushing the envelope, but he did it in such a smart way that nobody could see it until, you know, it was in the movies. And yeah, definitely the, the Hayes code, the Hayes code revealed the artists. I love that. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so we talked about the weird thing that everyone's French, but nobody has an accent. And, uh, <laughs> That's just, I remember I was reading my review from like 2016 and I pointed that out then. I'm like, why is everyone French? <laughs> I completely forgot about that. And now I'm like, yeah, why the hell is everyone French? 2016, Connor, good point. And it's just, it's just so weird and off-putting, but okay, <laughs> why not? In a movie about a man becoming a fly, the thing that bothered me and that I found unrealistic was the fact that all these French people don't, don't have an accent. <laughs> Never mind the fact that the guy's fly hand looked like a crab claw, you know, whatever, you know, of all the things to get mad about, Connor, the French people don't sound French. Yeah, it is weird, though. I don't know why they gave him a claw. <laughs> I mean, really, how do you know, unless you're looking under a microscope, what a fly's fucking legs look like? I'm pretty sure they don't have thumbs, though. I'm not. I'm not a I'm not an entomologist. I've never studied insects like that. I'm pretty sure. Okay, here's something else. Here's something else that I thought was really kind of funny, but also really brutal. Was the moment where he is uh, where Andres experimenting, and the cat comes downstairs. And <laughs> he's like, like, I'm sitting there. And I'm just watching, and she had already characterized. I'm like, yeah, you know, he'd never do anything. And Vincent Price, when he said he'd never even heard a fly, I'm like, yeah, I've heard that one before, dude. And the cat comes down there, and I'm like, he's not gonna. And I was watching it with my wife, Jamie, and she's like, he's not gonna do that to the cat, is he? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> Pretty sure he is. And then next thing you know, the cat is just like ethereal fucking wherever the fucking cat is and he just casually slips it in there like yeah my first experiment was with that his wife's like horrified Lane's just horrified you son of a bitch why would you do that to our cat but you're willing to just you know throw a gerbil in there guinea pig in there no problem what the hell <laughs> it's for science but I love his offhanded response of like, well, something happened to the cat. I'm not really, not really sure. No further testing needed, I guess. Just the cat vanished. I heard it meow into the ether and now just no cat. <laughs> it's, it's simultaneously alive and dead. We won't know what really happened to it until we see it. Yeah. He actually manifested Schrodinger's cat. <laughs> that's a, that's an, that's a successful experiment. I think. Hey, I'm sure Schrodinger, wherever he is, alive or dead or not dead, at the same time, is fucking just clapping. At least, he, at least he didn't make the cat explode inside out like Brundle did with that baboon. <laughs> I still, I still stand by that. That definitely, that was some foreshadowing. That's like, dude, this is not gonna end well. You keep pushing this. You keep pushing this out. This envelope. It's not gonna. It's not gonna be pretty. No, 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 no. I feel like if I was a scientist, I mean, now how, no matter how obsessive I was, if I was on the verge of teleportation, 
and I experimented with my cat and I made the cat vanish into nothingness, but still somehow be hovering around, I would be months, if not years away from putting myself in that machine. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I'd be like, oh, shit. There I go back to the drawing board again. Yeah, back to formula. That's some dark shit. <laughs> Another thing that weirded me out, uh, the kid at dinner had a wine glass. It was cut, though. It was cut, okay. Uncle, Godfather, Francois cut it with some water. Only gave him a little bit. And that's a very that's a very French thing. Okay, so check it out. You're moaning about their accents when their actions do not do not undermine. <laughs> it was just so weird to catch. I can't believe I'm I can't believe I'm trying to argue this one's in a like see their actions don't undermine that they're not French. You know, they, they might not sound French. They might not go oh ha oh, oh, wee wee wee. <laughs> but damn it if they don't serve their kids wine at dinner. I didn't need berets and tiny mustaches. I I wanted a little bit of, you know, inflection. That's all I wanted. <laughs> but it's so weird to see like just a seven-year-old casually sipping wine and being like, oh, this is good. No, and nobody shit. addresses and just, it. And he's just walking around like it's no big deal. Like, oh, yeah, I just have a little bit of, mm, yes, it's wonderful. Philippe, of course. I love that the whole movie, the kid's just like, when's daddy coming home? And everyone's like, oh. oh soon oh man like it's so and that and okay again i'm not you know we're, we're gonna keep going back to him but vincent price is like soon yeah <laughs> soon he'll be back he's like fuck me shut up about his dad don't have the heart to tell him his dad's fucking probably spider food by now at the end of the movie like it feels like they never told him <laughs> like he's just thinking dad's gonna show up one day I just like every time he brings it up, he's like, it has a weird white head and a weird leg. And I'm just like, yo, dude, that's your dad you're looking at, bro. That's fucked up. <laughs> so fucked up. Ugh. And that's then the kid's saying part of this part of this movie still holds up. Like when you really just think about it, think about the things that happen, even though it's shot very well it's you know it all happens pretty much during the daytime so there's all this beautiful light going on it's a dark ass movie dark there's an undercurrent of like some fucked up family drama in this movie that really never gets addressed but you can see little little hints of it and i like that a lot yeah i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure francois was the one that was torturing insects when they were when they were kids Pretty sure. Francois's older brother. Yeah, yeah. He's definitely the one that's yeah. It's got some menace to him. I think Philippe is Francois's kid. <laughs> I think that, that would explain a lot. Explains why he doesn't really care that his dad's never around. No, he can tell. And he loves spending time with Uncle Francois, who lets him drink wine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh so the bill. <laughs> The build-up to the reveal of the fly, I think, is done very well. They keep talking about, you know, when they ask her what happened to Andre at the, and like, why did you kill your husband? She's like, I don't want to talk about that. I can't, I can't tell you. And everyone's like, Well, come on, we need to know. And Francois lies about having a fly in the drawer. She's like, You caught the fly? Well, I guess you need to know. And then tells this story. It's it, the set. The build-up is really good, and I, I appreciate a good build-up. 
Yeah, yeah. I think they really did well um, incorporating, like, having it told in reverse and using and using Helene as a gateway into everything that happens, even though if you really want to be critical and pull it apart, there's a lot of things that she wasn't there for that how can she recall as her memory? Blah, 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 whatever. I wasn't going to nitpick about it. Just throwing it out there when somebody does watch it, they're like, oh, well, she, she couldn't really say. Yeah, no, we watched it. We know what we're talking about. Um, but yeah, like it's definitely, it's definitely handled well as far as that goes. But I also like it. She's like, no, you're going to have to call the inspector. I'm only saying this once. I'm like, damn, you're really demanding. Shit, woman. Okay, fine. There's but some it's really like he's smooth. Vincent Price is smooth. Francois is smooth. He's just like, yes, he's in my drawer. You know, all the time, all the, the the whole while, you just you just want to be like, damn it, woman, just tell me what happened to Andre. <laughs> and then, like, when we do see what happened to the press, like, she could have like shot him first or stabbed him or something. That is a horrifyingly painful way to die crushed to death like that like he goes in for alive twice twice (laughs) like what the fuck like put him out of his misery and then crush the body (laughs) jesus christ that was vicious that's one of those like one of the most brutal deaths i've ever seen in movie history like just knowing what he went through in those final moments i mean he wanted it like he said it was like that's it this is it that's gonna that's gonna be good for any of us. No, wish me like a grape. Christ! Oh my God! Like there was so many less painful ways to get rid of all that evidence than just press me. Holy fuck! <laughs> I was laughing. I'm like, they're really like he's going in there alive. Like Jesus! I was hoping like is she gonna like you know trank him something? But nope. Well, that was the thing. So like in the in the short they talk about that they talk about him wearing the velvet blanket over his head the whole time and that when they found his body he still had the velvet blanket over his head so it almost implied that he never fully like revealed himself like i said i haven't finished reading the short so i don't know that for sure um i i will i will finish it just because it's so it's so engaging in the way it's written it's all kind of like, it's kind of very like uh, procedural in the way that it's written. Everything is kind of just like laid out in front of you. Um, it's not very uh, conventional in that sense. Um, so again, the fact that they could actually get a screenplay out of this to make a film about it is pretty impressive. Um, if you if you ever do get the chance, I'll actually um, I'll actually send you. Uh, the link to what I have for the short and that way, you know, you can read it however you want to, you know, copy and paste it and drop it in a word doc or whatever. Um, but, you know, I think it's, I think it's worth reading. At, okay. the, at the least. Yeah, definitely. I'd love to see how they, like, I'd love to see what the original intended ending was. Cause I know. Oh it's yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Well, I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure you or I can kind of appreciate the the written version of it. Um, 
And then at least as far as a bridge goes from where I've been able to kind of study screenwriting and all that stuff and kind of how to like figure out what's the most important information to extract from a short story or a novel, you know, to put on screen. So yeah, definitely. I mean, even as like, you know, a nerd who writes, you kind of can appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. I'll check that out for sure. Um, I find it very interesting that Helene thought that telling this outlandish wild story to the cops with no proof at all was going to get her out of prison. I love that she's like, what? I'm still getting arrested? I told no, you what happened. That's <laughs> like, not how this works. That's not how any of this works. <laughs> you just admitted to murdering your husband. You're going to jail. Yeah. This might just- be... This might be Canada, but, you know, we still do have jails here. And not even just like, you know, I poisoned my husband or I shot my husband. I pressed my husband to death twice. (laughs) Oh, my God. I mean, that is that's hatred right there on, you know, on paper. (laughs) And uh, when they do find the little the little fly man who's in the spider web and they just kind of stare at him while he's being eaten by a spider and they're just like. And instead of picking up the spider and maybe flicking it away, the, the inspector just bashes it with a rock. Nah, <laughs> oh, fuck it, man. Game what? over, bro. Game over. Fucking crazy. Like, they had proof of the most incredible scientific accident in history. And then the inspector's like, oh, no, fuck that. <laughs> well, I mean, okay, let's play devil's advocate. Who's to say if they would have had him and Andre was still alive, that they could have gotten him back where they really needed to be. I mean, who's to say they could reverse it? Well, at that point, Andre's already dead. So exactly. They, but but, but yeah. the fact that he had that, like he had proof that that happened, like that A, would have gotten Helene off the chopping block. B, would have been an incredible scientific discovery. And I, I don't know, I feel like they had an opportunity there to study, study this some more. But the inspector was like, ah, man spider and, or man fly and just psh, bashed it. I don't know. <laughs> oh, no, no. I mean, I'm right there with you. I was just I was just playing. Yeah. Playing the other playing the other side of that coin and just in, let's say, in topsy turvy land. He was still alive when they found that man fly. And, no, there's no guarantee. They're not, this fucking guy made a cat disappear and turn into a fucking ethereal fucking prowler. Like, how the hell is he gonna be qualified enough to fucking get himself back together? Yeah, this guy basically invented ghosts by accident, <laughs> and it's kind of just glossed over. But yeah, there's no way in hell he would have been able to reverse all that shit. I mean, we see, you know, in the Cronenberg one, like it was he was doomed. Like this is, you know, it's on a cellular level here. Like you can't just take that out. Like that's who you are now. Yeah. Yeah. You're fucked. Yeah. Don't play God. The biggest lesson you can take away from these movies is don't play God. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. We have at the end of that, a wholesome American ending where, or wholesome Canadian ending where everything just kind of is wrapped up in a nice bow. Nobody's really missing Andre. They're making lemonade. There's a zoo trip on the way. And Francois finally got the girl of his dreams. Everything worked out. And his brother's son. He stole his brother's life, basically. <laughs> it was his plan all along. 
would have loved a final Kaiser Soze moment where it's revealed that like Francois put everything where it needed to be to fuck this up <laughs> just so he could take Helene away from him. He's just walking around dropping flies everywhere like he will find one of you, my pets. That is, that is something Soon, Price would totally Helene. say. Soon you'll be mine. <laughs> I'm just picturing like Andre's about to do the experiment on himself. He goes to the bathroom real quick. Francois sle- sneaks in and just tapes a fly to the ceiling of the booth and then walks away. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost too perfect. <laughs> you will be mine, Helene. <laughs> God damn. <laughs> We've created this whole secret subplot of the fly. <laughs> Brilliant. Hey, Vincent Price isn't around to refute us. We can do whatever we want. I read somewhere that after the uh, the Cronenberg fly came out, somebody, like Goldblum or Cronenberg, sent a letter to Vincent Price asking what he thought. And Price was like, I liked it to a point. <laughs> he went a little oh, too far. Oh, yeah. No, no. I'm I'm sure even, even that regal man has his limits. And he was probably like, well, I personally wouldn't have made some of these decisions. Yeah, I love that. But the fact that he's like, you know what? It was pretty good until things started melting. And then I was out. (laughs) Beautiful. That whole scene where he's peeling off his fingernails and his teeth are falling out. I I just didn't care for. (laughs) Got to be a fly on the wall when he got that letter. (sighs) So here's some film guys and facts. Number one. In the scene where the fly with Andre's head and arm is caught in the spider's web, a small animatronic figure with a moving head and arm was used in the web as a reference for actors Vincent Price and Herbert Marshall. Price later remembered that filming that scene required multiple takes because each time he and Marshall looked at the animatronic figure, they would burst out laughing. It was ridiculous. I mean, it, I mean, it still is ridiculous. Like I remember, even though at the time it came out, it was one of the most... And I actually, I'm going to pull up the quote for it from Mr. Thompson. Let me see. Okay, so he says, um, okay, Mr. Newman has wrought the most originally suggestive hair razor since the thing. So like that ending, like, He's, he's already throwing it out there to a Howard Hawks movie, which is, as anybody that knows horror and knows John Carpenter, those are some big words you're throwing. There's some big boots you're trying to fill there. Um, so, again, like we talked about earlier, the context of things, the fact that 1958, this movie comes out, that's one of the final shots of the film is this tortured creature about to be eaten by a spider. And you're just like, Oh shit. But really us looking at it 60 plus years later, help me, help me. And it's like one of the worst, it's one of the most poorly designed things I've ever seen. (laughs) Yeah. But you have to think 1958, that's pretty damn scary pretty fucking effective yeah i mean this was you know horror movies were around but they weren't you know 
they weren't huge. They were kind of niche. They were considered, you know, goofy, kind of a lower tier of genre. I mean, there's still people who think that today. They're full of shit. But it's uh, films like this kind of pushed the envelope at the time when you, to show like what you could do with the genre. And while it's not, you know, that groundbreaking looking today at the time, that was amazing. And yeah, I love that. I love films that, you know, you can kind of see how the landscape was built when you look at certain films and the fly, oh, certainly. Think, the fly fits into that early, early era very well. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it, even some of the, some of the visual effects. So from a technical standpoint, like the visual effects, the, anytime the, um, the transfer pods were used aside from a few shots where I could see them actually like having the straight up, like old school George Melies, like, this is a cut with this is a shot with the object in and then i'm going to stop shooting take the object out not move the camera and do it and you get that really jarring disappearance they're pretty damn seamless and they're really well done so from a technical standpoint it's it's really it's really an accomplishment so one of the things that most people are very dismissive about and i think i saw I saw a thread on Twitter about this where people were talking about jump scares and how they're not very effective and they're kind of really like maligning them. And there are a lot of people, um, film critics, filmmakers, actors, writers, all coming to the defense of it and saying that, no, in fact, you have to have a lot of technical understanding from a writing standpoint, from a filmmaking standpoint on how to create those things because a lot of horror and a lot of comedy is all, and I've said it so many times, anytime I'm on the show is that it's all about the setup and the payoff. And if you do it well enough, you're going to trick people into thinking some very fantastic things have happened. And that is one of the, that's one of the strengths of this movie is those illusions that they're casting even though they probably only shot the scenes with the machinery working two or three times and they just kept recycling them, it's still effective and it's still done in such a way that you're immersed, you're sucked into what's going on. So technically speaking, this movie has a lot more going on and a lot of achievement that movies 60 plus years later that aren't confident in using those techniques that just try and dismiss them and patch them together and get them out there. They don't spend time on them. You, you can see the difference for sure. So I'll give the fly that. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Like technically this is a marble. And uh, you know, I, I tend to like, we see a lot with um, Austin and I talk about the way we approach films. He, he looks at films from a visual standpoint. How does it look? How is it constructed? I tend to look at films more from a uh, story standpoint. Like, is this, is the story well-structured? Are the characters interesting? And The Fly, I think, fails a bit in that respect, but te like technologically and cinematically, it is a very cool film. So yeah, it's kind of on the line for me. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it definitely suffers from a narrative standpoint. Absolutely. And I think the only thing that saves it 
is those technical achievements, those ways that it is able to, even in 1958, which my mom was born in 1958. That's what, 62 years ago? Wait, no, longer than that. 72 years ago. 72 years ago. Yeah, just nuts. No, 62, 62. 62. Okay. I don't math, so I'll take it. Yeah, 62. But still, think about that. Think about how young film was at that point in 1958. And then now, where you see things now. Like, the, the level of sophistication that has come here to where largely things were done with optical illusions, camera tricks. Everything was done with the mechanism of film. Whereas things now are done with the technology, more more of the technology of film. So yeah, th this movie is it's got it going on, and definitely deserving of Shout Factory putting it together in a box set with this movie, Return of the Fly, Cronenberg's uh, The Fly, and The Fly Two. So yeah, killer. If that if that doesn't tell you how well revered this film should be just despite its narrative flaws that should say something yeah for sure i definitely i don't doubt its significance uh on the greater like horror scale just I, it's goddamn french people not being french and just the lack of empathy for the for andre like nobody gives a shit <laughs> oh well you know i'll I'm sure, you know, it takes me of like, it took me three or four watches to finally appreciate the Blair Witch Project. So who knows? Maybe one day I'll open my eyes on the fly. Uh, filmgasm fact number two, Patricia Owens has a real fear of insects. Director Kurt Newman used this by not allowing her to see the makeup until the unmasking scene. So her reaction is genuine because she's fucking terrified of bugs. Perfect. That's perfect if i was making that movie and i knew that i would definitely do that all day long all day long yeah that would have been a big like uh contributing factor in my casting patricia owens like, oh she's scared of bugs i'll take her <laughs> and number three i thought this was awesome david hedison suggested that his character wear progressive makeup effects that showed him in a mixed part human part fly state when his face is finally revealed instead of just a fully formed fly mask as depicted in the film. The producers declined due to the cost and time required to achieve the mixed human fly look, as well as it being too harsh and grotesque for audiences at the time. This concept was later fully embraced in the 1986 remake, which did focus on the lead scientist devolving slowly into a mutant creature. And I love that David Hedison had that foresight to be like, what if I'm turning into the fly the whole movie? And they're like, no, are you crazy? That's expensive and crazy and evil and dark. Haze code, man. <laughs> yeah, no, that definitely sounds like a, a producer rebuttal. Too expensive. Can't do it. Can't do it. Can't do it. <laughs> Straight up. Can you imagine, though, if like a movie on par with Cronenberg's The Fly came out in 1958, the reaction that movie would have had? Oh, man. It, it, <laughs> I, can, I can only imagine like the amount of people that would have gone running out of that theater watching that <laughs> like that movie would have surpassed the exorcist in like amount of nightmares and hospital visits upon release oh yeah yeah <laughs> totally oh that's cool so let's talk a bit about the sequels um the first sequel was 1959's return of the fly 
which sees Vincent Price return as Francois Delorme. As his nephew, Philippe, Andre's son, is now an adult beginning his own horrific teleportation experiments. And you'd think that for all this time, they would have finally said what happened to dad and been like, hey, you don't get to play around with teleportation. But nope, more fly. Have you seen uh, the sequels? Uh, so I watched bits and pieces of Return of the Fly. Um, I didn't see, was it Son of the Fly or something after that? Curse of the Fly. Curse of the Fly. Yeah, might as well be Son of the Fly, but <laughs> whatever. Um, yeah, no, uh, I haven't seen that. Uh, I did see Cronenberg's uh, The Fly, and I also saw um, The Fly 2, obviously. Um, you know, a lot more accessible around my time. Um, because I am the old bastard of filmgasm. So, yeah. Cool. I haven't seen The Fly 2 yet because I know it's going to suck. And uh, I'll find an excuse one day to finally watch that movie. Yeah, you just, you you really just have to just just do it. Like, don't, don't hope it's going to be better or as good. It's, it's one of these things, like, if you like Eric, if you like Eric Stoltz, watch The Fly too. Like that's, I think I think the idea behind it is is cool enough. Um, you know, somebody is trying to um, like examine what Seth Brundle did, and his and his son is like just a thing. He's just an experiment. He's not. They're not regarding him as human. Um, they're not trying to understand him or anything like that. They're just, he's just an experiment to them and they pay for it. And it's, it's a, it's a really, I love it. It's a really good monster movie. So okay, more monster movies, please. I love a good monster movie. Well, it's in the book. Maybe one day we'll end up doing the fly too. We have 1965's curse of the fly, which follows several other members of the Delam family as they perform their own horrific experiments, teleportation. And I was reading the synopsis of this, and there's like four other members of the Delam family. Apparently, this whole family is invested in teleportation experiments. And now they're like, everyone in the family is doing it differently, and they're hiding it from each other. I don't know. It didn't really make a lot of sense. It felt very much like a cash grab sequel in 1965. Sounds about right. I mean, I just got confused from what you're reading. And <laughs> yeah. yeah. Maybe maybe one day when I'm feeling particularly sadistic, will I plop my ass on a couch and watch that? <laughs> then, of course, there's the 1986 remake of The Fly, directed by David Cronenberg, starring Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis. Considered one of the greatest horror remakes of all time, it is far more notable than the 1958 film and a truly great lesson in freakish body horror. And let's talk about this for a bit, but obviously this is going to get its own big old episode one day, so we won't go too in-depth on Cronenberg's The Fly, but let's, let's kind of, you know, ruminate it a little bit. That movie is an absolute masterpiece. It's, uh, yeah, it's one of the most freakish, well-done horror remakes ever. And kind of amazing that they were able to take this goofy 58 horror film and turn it into this nightmare. <laughs> I think... I think one of the things that I really love about this is that Cronenberg just made it his own. Um, aside from Videodrome and Scanners, this and like Shivers and Rabid, like 
this is definitely, you know, you're watching a David Cronenberg movie when you see this. It it has his it has his hands all over it. Um, it yeah, this th- this movie definitely begs for its own episode because there's just so much to unpack with this. Um, it's truly like I don't. I don't know if, how much you know about the auteur theory um, when it comes to criticism and all that stuff. So that that movie is like a really good example of it because <clears throat> not only is Cronenberg really flexing his own muscles, he's also able to weave in like George Romero level social commentary on a couple of things, um, not just from a direct like in your face aspect of what Seth Brundle's doing, but kind of like what he's saying about his slow deterioration and like what was going on in the world at the time. And he's, he's able to do all of that with a movie that has exploding baboons and, you know, a fucking giant fly monster man at the end. And there's just that, fuck it calling it a a remake like it is just one of the best horror movies to ever come out of the 80s period period straight up it's yeah wonderful film uh i love that it's one of the few horror films to boast an oscar win took home best makeup in 1987 love that and it's just yeah to this day considered just an absolute classic and uh yeah i can't wait to talk about that one in depth when we get that out of the book yeah, and I think with any I think with any really great horror film, it has a timeless quality to it. Like you could watch this movie now and you can still find yourself looking at it and going like, "Oh shit. There's still stuff like this happening today." Like I can ne- that's why I can never get tired of watching Dawn of the Dead because George Romero was so far ahead of himself and the world that that movie still continues to be relevant to this day and the day that the day that it pops up in the book i just i hope i'm around for it or you will save it because there's just so much that that movie talks about alludes to and you can even just like inject on what's going on in the world right now with what that movie says so credit to cronenberg for making something that, you know, which which very much has its own trappings of the 80s and everything, but still manages to, you know, be relevant and stay fresh. What, 30 plus years later? Yeah, I think the best horror films, the best films in general are films that are timeless and can, you know, feel relevant at any moment. And yeah, I definitely feel that with The Fly, Dawn of the Dead, it has been a long time since I've since I've sat down and watched Dawn of the Dead, but I do remember the social commentary aspect of that film, and I really enjoyed it. And yeah, when we draw Dawn of the Dead, I'll definitely ring you up. <laughs> Please do. Killer. Uh, so in regards to the original Fly, I give it a seven. Um, it's got a good setup. Price is charming to watch as ever. I just find it a little dull and a little unrealistic in its characters, not... I think the sci-fi aspects are are done really well, but yeah, I prefer the remake wholeheartedly if I had to pick. And yeah, this one gets a seven from me. Yeah, I can agree with that. Yeah. Um, 
when I can get around to writing it, uh, writing one up, I, yeah, uh, I, I can see a seven being actually like really, I don't want to use the word generous, but it's definitely uh, shows respect for, for what it is. I mean, cause if you didn't have this movie, who knows what Cronenberg would have dug up for 86. So yeah. Exactly. Maybe we would have gotten a House of Wax remake in 1986. Hey, I would have been down for that, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> God, Cronenberg would have just met. Oh, my God, that would have been freakish. <laughs> Killer. Awesome. So um, to close out today's show, um, we, we're going to do a Vincent Price movie draft where we go through his career to the films that both of us have seen. Try to get a group of three good ones. And um, here's a list of the films we're going to use. We only did films that obviously both of us have seen, so it's on even ground. We have House of Wax, The Fly, House on Haunted Hill, The Raven, The Last Man on Earth, The Mask of the Red Death, Witchfinder General, The Abominable Dr. Fives, and Edward Scissorhands. So three films each. Uh, We're trying to get the best group. So why don't you go first? All right, you're probably going to hate me, but I already talked about it once. I'm, I'm going to have to go with my first choice as Witchfinder General. Yeah, I had a feeling you were going to take that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, I enjoyed the hell out of that movie. So dark, so ahead of its time, so underappreciated. And uh, yeah, great choice. I am going to snag The Last Man on Earth. Oh, I remember the first time I, I saw that and then like, go backwards because a lot of things that i that i saw first it's like oh shit there was a story that was written about this <laughs> and then that opened the richard matheson doors you're like oh this is just, that's just a whole other world and you start watching the twilight zone and fucking guys everywhere i know matheson hated every version of i am legend that ever made it to film but from what i've seen i think last man on earth is the definitive one I think that story's done so well. I love Price's like feelings of isolation. The way he plays just a lonely man is done so well. And like the vampires are scary. It's I, I really enjoyed that movie. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Heston's a little hammy for me. I've never like I think I I, th- I think the only movie I really truly enjoyed him in was Planet of the Apes. And that's just because at the end, like like the ending really makes it for me. Yeah, and sure. and that part where he you know he's like get your damn hands off me damn dirty eggs and it's like okay Charlton Heston all right I'm gonna say it here personally I think Charlton Heston was a joke I I never liked his performances I always thought he was overrated as hell and just a goofy weird Hollywood guy so yeah never been a fan of Chuck Heston <laughs> I think I think with so with Omega Man and then uh, Soylent Green. Like those are like those those two performances really kind of encapsulate what you get and Planet of the Apes when you got Heston. It's like he is going full ham all the time. He has no like I don't think he has range. He just has from zero to fucking you damn dirty apes on his scale, and he's always up to damn dirty apes no matter what. Because because even when he reveals what the secret ingredient is in Soylent Green, it's it's on that level with just like, 
so intense, his weathered ass face. So yeah, last man on earth is a good choice. Killer. All right, back to you. Uh, probably my personal favorite Vincent Price movie on this list is The Abominable Dr. Vibes. Right on, right on. It's if if you had anybody else in that movie, I don't think it would have would have worked as well. Um, some of the some of the other actors are kind of a little stiff, and it I, I know they're trying to be you know serious and all that, and I think they kind of they kind of miss what Vincent Price is going for. Vincent Price is having fun with this movie. He was all about just hamming it up as Dr. Fives, this grandiose, you know, like he understood the character he was playing. I mean, Joseph Cotton, like how do you have Joseph Cotton in this movie? And like, he's, he even feels flat to me. I think the only person that's firing on all cylinders in this movie is Vincent Price. Dr. Fives, again, I think it is a, a case of it needs repeated viewings because I have only watched that movie one time. And I found it very bizarre and uh, a little weird to enjoy. Uh, but you know what? I am going to revisit that one at some point. Thankfully, it is in the book. So I'm going to let this podcast kind of dictate where I need to go next. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you, you, you've, got, you've got a good compass going there, you know, whatever the book throws at you. Um, yeah, I will say, again, like I've said countless times, and I've said it already, it's like context, like, Go in knowing that you're going to get, uh, you know, straight up turned up to 11 Vincent Price, just hamming it up in this role. And there are plenty of scenes you see him. He is having a ball doing this, having so much fun. He loves playing villains. Loved it. I mean, if like, Matthew Hopkins didn't give you that vibe already, like he loves, I think one of my favorite Okay, one of my favorite pictures of Vincent Price outside of him like being in the kitchen or taking his kids out trick-or-treating and shit is him in full Matthew Hopkins gear out in London buying candy. There's a picture of him as Matthew Hopkins with chocolate bars in his hand. And you find that shit. It is perfect. That is amazing. I love that. He just went to a store in full makeup. That's fucking awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and speaking of makeup, I have to take House of Wax. I adored you. Yeah. Son of a bitch. <laughs> House of Wax was the film that turned my grandma off of horror movies forever. And I finally watched it and I was like, this isn't that scary, but it's fucking awesome. And I love a young Charles Bronson and just a crazy Vincent Price and uh, the great makeup effects. Like House of Wax is, is still a killer horror film. And yeah, epic, epic movie. Yeah, again, like it's just a testament to how great Vincent Price is and the fact that he could he could be a loving, probably sinister brother trying to steal your old lady and your kid or just a full on maniac. And he does it all with wit and charm and a smile on his face. Yeah, absolutely. He never I never doubt who he's playing. It's awesome. I'll buy it every time. <laughs> Whether he's on fucking Sesame Street or whatever. Like I, I buy the guy every time. <laughs> oh, all right. Your final pick. 
Uh, I'm going to have to go with a classic House on a Hill. Yep. <laughs> that movie was... All right. I have mixed feelings about House on Haunted Hill. Um, I thought the idea was great. There are some some super creepy moments in there, but I kind of resented that all of it was kind of like, you know, a, a, it was fake. I was like, what? I, I felt that was kind of a cop-out. Yeah. I can, I can, I can, I can jive with you on that. And I think, I think when you, in the fact that the guy who made it was all about the full experience of it, yeah. you're like, of course he would make a movie like this. Of course he would fucking trick you the entire time you're watching this and thinking something that you're watching is, you know, what it's billed as, but then you're like, you son of a bitch. Well played, sir. Well played, sir. But that's, you know, that's that's another one that is a product of its time, like The Tingler, uh, another Vincent Price movie uh, that I regretfully haven't seen yet, so shame on me. Um, but, you know, that was something that was part of the experience of going to movies, is having these little gimmicks. Um, John Waters later used it when he did, um, was it, Polyester, he uh, put a movie out where he had uh, scratch and sniff cards, um, and it was it was billed as being shot with odorama. And I actually um, last year when Criterion was doing a sale, yes, Criterion is smart enough to have John Waters movies. That's right. Um, they they released uh, they had their half price sale, and I got polyester, and there's a odorama card in there. I dare not scratch and sniff any of it, but it's there. So that's cool. You know, somebody who is paying homage to the gimmicks of the of the day when he was growing up to yeah. pass that experience along to somebody who is brave enough to go sit in one of his movies. You got to appreciate that. I'll give it this House on Haunted Hill for a movie that was made entirely basically to sell movie tickets to like some weird experience. It was a gimmick movie. Very good for that for that kind of thing. And there is a scene in that movie that scared the absolute shit out of me. And it's the scene where uh, one of the, one of the ladies is like looking along the wall and she just looks to her left and there's a fucking like witch lady standing there. And then she just kind of floats away. Like, what the, f that was terrifying. <laughs> so there's, there's some things to like about this one. Um, what do you think of the remake? Uh, so that actually came along at the perfect time. I mean, I think I was, what, it came out in 99, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was 16. I got to go see it in the theater. Um, my mom took me. Yeah. I'm lame. My mom took But the cool thing was she was also like, Hey, that guy's like Vincent Price and Jeffrey Rush. Like he, he does a really damn good job at like channeling Vincent Price yeah. in that movie. I'll, I, st I still like, I haven't watched it in a few years, but, one of the last times I watched it, I remember going like, you know, he did a really good job just just doing his best Vincent Price. And he didn't do it like to be hammy or anything like, like he like he just he just played it just right. Um, for being a remake and trying to bring it into the the present, I thought it was okay. Um, I'm yeah, I mean ghosts, ghosts and things like that aren't really gonna get me. Um but yeah, it was definitely a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed it. 
Um, but yeah, Jeffrey Rush definitely was the standout for me. Yeah, definitely. I have a soft spot for the House of Haunted Hill remake. I love Jeffrey Rush to death. And uh, yeah, I just find that film to be very entertaining. I thought it did a great job of kind of the reverse of the original, where you think it's all real, but it's fake. In this movie, you think it's fake, and it's all real. And that was very cool. And I liked that. I love, you know, the use of Marilyn Manson's cover of Sweet Dreams, establishes a great mood. Um, stop motion ghosts, I think, are fucking creepy. And my mom will not watch that movie because of those ghosts. Like, I try to do it every Halloween, but she's like, nope, I'm leaving if you put that on. <laughs> and I'm like, fine. Because <laughs> admittedly, it's creepy. And um, yeah, I can't wait to do that one on the show one day. That would be a fun episode. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Killer. So for my last pick, I'm going to, hmm, I think I'm going to take the Raven. Uh, <laughs> that was a weird movie, but for a movie that was basically just based on a poem that had nothing to do with anything that happened in that movie, uh, pretty good <laughs> to see, you know, Vincent Price, Boris Karloff and Peter Lorre in the same movie like that alone is unreal and it's goofy, but it's a fun goofy and yeah, I'll take the Raven. Certainly. I mean, you got to be able to appreciate uh, the fact that those three were in a film together. Um, you you put those three, and and that's like, so that's like a, a classic Hollywood technique, you know, get some names, put them in something, and I mean, do we really have to think that hard about it? No, not really. Um, a lot of a lot of Poe was getting churned out at that time. Um, you know, an honorable mention I'll throw out there was Mask of the Red Death. Um, the fact that it like, <clears throat> even now people were pointing out its relevance to, you know, some things in the political arena that have been happening. Um, so again, good art still finds its, you know, still manages to speak to us long after it was created. And yeah. There were there were a few I, I made a, I made some some notes on some other ones that I had seen that I will recommend to you. Um, Madhouse, gotta watch it. It's Vincent Price and um, Peter Cushing, Ooh. and it's um, it's kind of uh, self reflexive in a way. Uh, Vincent Price is playing a horror movie uh, actor who is kind of past his prime, and he is finding out that like somebody's killing people around him and it's got this little bit of murder mystery going on with some other crazy stuff. Um, one of my favorite bits of Vincent Price in makeup as Dr. Death. That was his character. Um, so yeah, that's a good one. And then uh, theater of blood. It's Vincent Price going crazy with Shakespeare. Um, those two, especially. I encourage you to check out. Yeah. Absolutely. Great picks. One I really wanted to see was um, the comedy of terrors. I, I wanted to do that back when we did the Vincent Price episode. I wanted that one to be on the list, but we couldn't get it in time. And uh, now it's on Prime. So once I have some free time, I definitely want to check that one out. But I'll definitely look at Madhouse and Theater of Blood as well. Right on. So let's remind the audience, what were, what were your picks? Uh, I had Witchfinder General. 
Dr. Fives, and House on Haunted Hill. All right. And I had The Last Man on Earth, House of Wax, and The Raven. And uh, there's a whole bunch more Vincent Price flicks out there. Uh, I'd like to do this again in like a year just to see like what else have we seen by at that point. So yeah, definitely great way to, you know, continually celebrate one of horror's biggest icons and biggest contributors. And uh, yeah, this was fun. Good uh, stuff, man. I like that. Yeah, man. Thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, thanks for joining me today. Josh had an awesome time. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Right on, man. Next week, I'll be introducing the newest member of the team, uh, Julie Cervantes, in her first episode. Uh, and the movie is an underrated, eerie thriller from 2015 that we drew from the book. Ended up being a great film to revisit. Joel Edgerton writes, directs, and stars as Gordo, a disturbed, vengeful psychopath who needles his way into his old high school bully's life to get his revenge in the worst way. Next week, it is 2015's The Gift with our newest co-host. Going to be a great time. Catch Kramer versus Kramer and our 1979 Best Picture Showdown on Oscar Sunday this weekend. And if you ever want to experiment with teleportation, it might be prevalent to invest in some mosquito netting or at least a few strips of flypaper. See you next Wednesday. Thank mm-hmm. you.